Uh, that song is by Sister Rosetta Tharp, who was quite a guitar player, right, Ben? Um, and I, if you haven't listened to Sister Rosetta Tharp, look it up on however you listen to music. Um, up above your head, what a great choice for Transfiguration Sunday. All right, if we were in the, the, one of the churches I used to work for, we'd say amen. Amen? All right, we can do that. Good. Our reading from the Gospel of Matthew on Transfiguration Sunday is from Matthew 17. It's here in your bulletin. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. I'll set up three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, do not be afraid. When they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself, alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of our Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. God, open our ears that we would hear the gospel this morning. Open our eyes, and we say that in a, in a particular way this morning because of this vision that, that we are beholding that's written down for us. Open our eyes that we would see Jesus, Jesus transfigured, what that might mean for us. In Jesus' name, amen. What a mysterious event, right? I love the way Matthew tells the story. And then this happened, and then this happened, and then there were Moses and Elijah, and then Peter said, how about three tents? I mean, it just, it sounds like the directions to, I don't know what, uh, you know, there's just words, right? But it, when you think about it, oh my goodness, how do you tell a story that, <laughs> that captures the mystery, the glory, the amazement of what it must have been like to behold the transfiguration of Jesus well, the early church told that story in iconography, and I, uh, I didn't grow up in a tradition where iconography was part of, in, in any sense, part of worship, um, and I, you know, I think I'm a little impoverished because of that, and I, I, I envy a little bit those of you who are artists and visually minded, because I bet when you read this this morning, you know, your eyes and your mind are just popping, and you're thinking about how in the world would this have looked, and maybe you're thinking about how you might represent it on paper or some other medium. The early church 
loved to represent this mysterious event and its iconography. And, you know, you have to remember, not very many people read back then. They would have heard this story a few times during worship, read to them from the Gospel of Matthew and other places in the Gospels. Um, But what reminded them of the transfiguration was that they saw it all the time in all its mystery, grandeur portrayed in these images. And um, yeah, and the early church and its theology and the theology joined to its iconography pondered what does the transfiguration mean for us as human beings. And the early church talked about union with Christ and how mysteriously we are caught up in union with Christ in Jesus' baptism, so that those words, these words sound familiar to you? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Words from Jesus' baptism, right? And so the early church thought about how those words, um, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, those words are not just for Jesus, but they're for Jesus, for you, and for me. Because our humanity is joined to Jesus and his life and his transfiguration and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Those words echoing on that mysterious day, that mysterious event, that majestic day, that majestic event, those words are not just for Jesus but they are for you. Pictured in the transfiguration is Jesus after the cross. Jesus after the resurrection, even. Jesus ascended in all of Jesus' glory, taking humanity into the heavenly dimension. That's what's pictured here. It's a little preview. And that preview is not just for Jesus who faces the cross not just for the disciples who shakily, at best, come to the cross, but those words are there for you and for me. Uh, And echoing down through the ages, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. That's for you too, and that is you too. The children with whom God is well pleased. So that's a little bit of a preview of where we're going this morning. Um, But now I want to dig into Matthew's story a little bit. Um, Just before Jesus is transfigured in the presence of Peter and James and John, Matthew tells us, and this is the quote that happens a little bit before this event, Matthew says that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And to that, Peter famously says, God forbid it, Lord, this must not happen to you. And then Jesus famously replies to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind 
on divine things. I'm sorry, you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Neither Peter nor any of the rest of the disciples, none of them had a category for a crucified Messiah. None of them did. How could they? The Messiah is not supposed to lose. What? The Messiah is supposed to be on a war horse, gathering God's people together, liberating them from the oppression of Rome. This is some version of that is fixed in the first century Jewish mindset. A crucified Messiah? I mean, really, how can crucifixion be winning? And so you wonder, is there just a moment at the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John thought that maybe things were going to work out differently? I mean, maybe Peter thought, hey, maybe Jesus thought about what I said to him. Lord, no, not, don't do this. <laughs> I mean, is there just a moment here where, where Peter, James, and John thought that maybe Elijah and Moses had come back from the dead to lead Jesus in a messianic triumph, bringing renewal to God's people and liberation from the Romans. But then in a flash, those two figures disappear. And so does the intense radiance. And so does the brilliant light. And that loud booming voice becomes a faint echo. And we're back to Jesus pointing towards suffering and dying in Jerusalem. Well, the figures are gone and Elijah and Moses, they're gone. The, the light is gone. The radiance is gone. The, the voice is faint echo, but it's not gone. It is hidden and out of earshot, okay? It is hidden and out of earshot until the resurrection and until the ascension. The voice isn't gone. Just maybe not going to hear it for a little while. Seems to be one of the great lessons of Lent Passion Week, and the resurrection, that to us, what looks like failure by our standards is shot through with the radiant glory and power of God. And what often looks like power and glory, according to the world's definitions of power and glory, are actually parodies of true power and glory. Regarding the former, this is how the early church came to understand Jesus' death on the cross. A shameful death by human standards, but shot through with the glory and power of God that we get a preview of here in the transfiguration. And then regarding the latter, the parodies of glory and power that I mentioned that's why the church is always taught about the dangers of materialism, vanity, and greed. They're all parodies of God's true power and true glory that we see 
at work in the seeming defeat of Jesus on the cross. Interestingly, Peter, in the passage that we read just before communion this morning, interestingly, Peter, writing to the young churches in his pastoral care, you know, this is quite a few years after the transfiguration, he turns to his memory of this moment in Jesus' life when he's searching for something to hold on to in the midst of suffering, something that he wants to give his flock to hold on to as the early church, we know that Peter writes to the early church that you know, is already beginning to suffer a little bit of persecution that will turn into a lot of persecution. Peter gives them the transfiguration, that image to hold on to. And, and he, we don't know what those cleverly devised myths are exactly that he was talking about, but there are always cleverly devised myths to take our eyes off of what God is doing in our life, what God is doing in the world, what God is doing in the cross of Christ. And Peter says, don't fall for it. And he gives them the transfiguration to hold on to. <laughs> Stop and think for a minute. Um, there's the resurrection, right? <laughs> I mean, what beats the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Well, nothing does, okay? Um, but my point is, is, is Peter has the resurrection and he has the ascension of Jesus to offer them as images, but he goes to the transfiguration. So powerful is that event in his memory, so meaningful to him, you know, as he looks back on it and he Okay, this is a little bit of imaginative thinking here. But, I mean, we know that Peter denies Jesus three times. We know that Peter gets singled out by Jesus for reaffirmation, reconciliation. We know that Jesus empowers Peter to be an amazing leader in the early church, gives that amazing sermon after Pentecost. And I just wonder... If the transfiguration is so important to Peter because he's always thinking to himself. And I, I said, let's build three tents. <laughs> I mean, there is just a little bit of humor, I think, floating just underneath of a lot of what happens in the lives of the disciples, a lot of what happens in our lives. Uh, you have to be able to laugh at your failures and we laugh at them not because they're not serious and not because they didn't hurt us and maybe other people. But in the end, God's people have joy in our repentance and joy in our confidence because of the fact that our future is included in what's previewed in Jesus's transfiguration. Our future, because of God's love and grace that will never be defeated in our life, our future belongs to God, and it is shot through with God's glory and God's light and God's radiance. So maybe the transfiguration is what leaps to Peter's mind because he thinks to himself, yeah, you know what? That really did set up all those events that at the time I didn't understand, and now I hang on to that image 
as something that reminds me of our future, even in the midst, and especially in the midst of suffering. You know, um, last week we were on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we talked about how, you know, these six times where Jesus said, we only had four of them, I think, last week, but it's from the section of the Sermon on the Mount where there's six times where uh, Jesus says, you heard it said this, but I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> and he really intensifies the, you know, the meaning of God's law, and he goes down to the heart of things. And we said that, um, you know, one of the things that all those examples that Jesus gives of what the rabbis were teaching, how to interpret God's law in the Old Testament, all of them, in one way or another, not only aren't the intent behind God's law, but also the way that it was taught at the time, you have heard it said this and that, was a way that really didn't enable people to lean into the flourishing that God has for us. Um, and so we talked about how we need to let the challenge, really, of the Sermon on the Mount really hit us deeply. And then I talked about how if we do that, um, we're going to experience more human flourishing than we could have ever imagined. And we're also going to experience a whole lot of failure along the way. A whole lot of failure along the way. And then I mentioned this book that I'm reading for Lent, um, called Failure, and um, how it reminds us that, you know, we settle for mediocrity in our lives if we don't take seriously what God has for us and really work to lean into that by God's grace and mercy, and then accept God's forgiveness when we fail. You know, each one of those, um, you've heard it said, but I say to you, each one of those, you've heard it said, are ways to kind of settle, right? Uh, all those examples were, you know, examples of trying to make the law manageable. And anytime you make God's intentions manageable by human standards, you end up settling for something less than what God has for you, what God has for me. And so I said, you know, you've got to, and in the words of the, the person who wrote the book that we mentioned last week, um, Emma Ineson, right? Um, she says, you know, the thing about failure is um, you don't look at it as I failed, so now I'm going to succeed. You look at it as something that you make kind of an odd friendship with in your life, and you realize that failure will be a part of your life. But if you appropriate the riches of God's grace and mercy, you'll find that in each of those events where repentance is, is made and where empowerment is given by God, that you'll come through and you'll flourish more than you ever believed you could in the first place. And it will enable you to be a better friend to other people. Because if, you're, if you are an odd kind of a friend with your own failure, no one else will surprise you, <laughs> okay, with theirs. And you can come alongside them rather than judge them. I love this book, and she says things that are so astute. She says, it is so easy. Like, when you see somebody else fail, it's like, how could they do that, right? But if you do it yourself, you're like, you know what? It's okay. <laughs> there were reasons. There were circumstances, right? There are reasons and circumstances, but her point's well taken. 
All right, we're coming close to the end here. The way Matthew tells this story is interesting. Matthew tells us that Peter, James, and John are with Jesus at the Transfiguration, which we just read, and also at the Garden with him, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus asks, Father, is there some way that I can do what you sent me to do without dying on the cross? I mean, it is an agonizing moment for Jesus. At the Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, they're astonished, and they're confused, okay? At the garden where Jesus prays, asking his Father if there's a way forward apart from the suffering of the cross, what are Peter, James, and John doing? They're asleep. They are asleep, okay? For the whole prayer that Jesus offers, they're unable to intercede for Jesus. It would seem that Matthew wants us to take note of Peter, James, and John being with Jesus at these key moments, but not being very capable or particularly helpful, right? They're there, but they're not really helping. And it's tempting for us to come up with clever theological summaries that might be consistent with Matthew's literary art, but maybe it's better to just see them there. Peter, James, and John, as if captured in snapshots. Astonished one moment, confused the next, and all in all, too tired to pray with and for Jesus when he, when he is at his most difficult hour. And there we are with them, aren't we? Astonished, confused, and tired. It is only after Easter that they see things as they really are. And then the transfiguration makes sense. And maybe that is a good way for us to begin Lent, acknowledging our incapacity, but hanging around until Jesus gives us eyes to see. Ash Wednesday is Wednesday. Failure is a part of our life. Failure will never overcome God's love and care for us. It's right there in the transfiguration if we have eyes to see. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.